Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us. Uh, all those here uh, that are joining us live and will watch this broadcast later, may they all be enlightened and draw closer to you and be your representatives in this world at this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson two in our new quarterly, Three Cosmic Messages, and the title is A Moment of Destiny. And the second paragraph in the Sabbath lesson says the following. In these last days of human history, he has sent a special message to the world and to his people designed to meet the need of the hour. He pictures this message as being carried by three angels flying in mid-heaven with their urgent end-time message to all the world. And <clears throat> we, if, if you've been raised in Adventist, I'm sure you're quite familiar with the three angels' messages of Re Revelation thir uh, 14. And I want you to think about it this week. How would you describe it? How would you share it with people who've never heard it? You're sitting on a plane or a bus or in a, in a, in a bench at a ball game and, and somebody asks you about it. How would you explain it to them? Would you use these words out of Christ Object Lessons, page 415, uh, which the author says the following. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. Uh, if you were to describe the three angels' messages to somebody, would this text, this quotation, this description immediately jump into your mind? Yes, this is the message of God's mercy, his goodness, his truth, his character of love. This is what I think of when I think about the fire and the brimstone and the smoke of the torment rising forever and ever. Is that what jumps to your mind with the three angels' message? Nope. No. <laughs> And if not, then I encourage you to review our magazine, The Final Message of Mercy to the World, The Three Angels, The Message of the Three Angels. If you're there in person, we have them on the table in the lobby, take one. If you uh, are watching online and have a U.S. postal address and would like one, a physical copy, then email us your address. We will ship those out. And this would be a perfect quarter for you to share some at your church with people who are studying this quarter uh, around the circle. And if you're not in the U.S. and don't have a U.S. postal address, then on our website, you can download a PDF of this. You can also read it on our flip book electronically. So this is available, and I encourage you to read it because it really does expound how, in fact, the three angels' messages are a revelation of God's character of love. Sunday's lesson. Let's jump to Sunday. Uh, first paragraph says, Revelation 14 is Jesus' final message of mercy to a fallen and rebellious world, one that has for about 6,000 years been steeped in sin and evil. There will come a day when every human being on planet Earth will make a final, irrevocable decision, either for or against Jesus. Revelation's message of Christ's righteousness delivering us from the condemnation of sin as well as the grip of sin in our lives will echo and re-echo throughout the earth. Do you agree that a time is coming when every single person will make a decision for or against Jesus? Yes. 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 
And have you thought how that's going to happen? Is this talking about that that there will be Bible studies and, and evangelists preaching uh, in churches and, and from pulpits around the world, and every single person will attend a church meeting or a Bible study and be faced with the opportunity to make an affirmative uh, declaration of faith in Jesus and be baptized? Is that what this is speaking about? No. Well, <clears throat> it's about the example that we set for the people that, that we contact every day. Oh, I like where you're going with that, Tina. That's very good. Uh, <clears throat> Is, is it about every person being faced with a decision of some religious law that will be passed? And everybody have to decide to obey this religious law or to not obey this religious law. Is that, is that what it means? No. no. Necessarily. Or will it be what Tina is suggesting, the principles and methods and motives that we apply to our own lives and how we treat others? How will everyone make a decision? I think this text in Matthew 25, Jesus' parable, or excuse me, description, um, object lesson about the end time in Matthew 25, where he says that he separates, the Son of Man will separate the sheep from the goats. And when he separates the sheep from the goats, whether the saved from the lost, he then will say, I tell you the truth, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me, and whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So is it possible that everyone will decide for or against Jesus, not in a religious ceremony or attestation of faith or a response to a law, but in how they treat other people? Also, it's how they accept distress in their life, like your blog. The witness that people show by the way they live during emergencies or sadness, whatever, reveals, hey, they're, they're serving somebody different here. Who is it? Who, who guides them? That's their witness. That's right. right. Exactly. That's exactly right. <clears throat> then it means we decide for or against Jesus by the methods and principles that we practice and how we treat others. Absolutely. It means that in how we treat others, we are choosing which law is written upon our own hearts and minds. Are we surrendering in faith to Jesus and choosing to love God and, and others more than self so that we live out the principles of truth and liberty and love and how we treat others? Or do we choose instead the law of fear, <clears throat> of selfishness, of survival, of protecting self? <clears throat> Are we willing to sacrifice harm, exploit, deceive, min sacrifice others? Harm, exploit, deceive, manipulate, denigrate, vilify people in order to protect ourselves. Or perhaps we wouldn't do it to protect ourselves. We would only use these methods of manipulation and exploitation to protect the church properties that we're, we're managing. <laughs> I mean, it's better for one man to die than the nation, Caiaphas said. It's better to have a phony fake trial bring perjury to false testimony, seek to get the man crucified so we can protect the nation because we've been entrusted with, with running this, this institution of God's here. So we should use these methods to protect it. You understand during COVID, individuals, governments, organizations revealed the God that they worship. They were choosing for or against Jesus and how they applied the principles to their own lives and how they treated other people. The good news is, it's not too late for those who chose to coerce and intimidate and misrepresent and exploit in order to, quote, save lives. It's not too late for them to repent and choose to, in fact, live a different way and treat other people with the principles of love and liberty. 
Second paragraph says, Jesus promise, Jesus's promise that the gospel of the king would preach to the whole world, given in Matthew 24, 14, finds its fulfillment in Christ's last day message of Revelation 14, 6, which says that the gospel is proclaimed to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. What is the gospel that's proclaimed? What is it? The good news about God, that's exactly right. This is the eternal gospel, the good news that's always been true in eternity past and will always be true in eternity future, which is the good news about God himself, that God is not the kind of being Satan had represented him to be. He's not a legal rule maker, taskmaster, enforcer, the source of pain, suffering, and death inflicted upon people who, who uh, refuse to love him or break his rules. That's all imperial Roman. That is not from the Bible. We are to take the eternal good news that God is not like that. And we are to leave behind the systems of imposed penal law systems of the Babylonian system and worship him who made the creator, him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, whose laws are the protocols reality exist upon. The lesson then asked in the bottom, in the bottom section, how does God shape our characters? What does, it, what does he use for us to grow in his grace and what can we do to more fully allow the Holy Spirit to transform us? And what does he use? Truth and love via the work of the Holy Spirit. Truth and love via the Holy Spirit work in our heart brings us to conviction. And then life events and experiences which put us in places that Tina was suggesting just a moment ago where we have to choose. Do we apply? Do we align with? Do we say yes to truth and love and the principles of God as brought to our hearts by the Holy Spirit? Or do we double down on the systems and methods of this world, the survival methods? So truth and love by the Holy Spirit bringing us to conviction and then life experiences that give us opportunity to practice and apply those. And what does it, what does he use to help us grow? The Holy Spirit. The Bible. Holy Spirit. And what does it mean for us to, to grow in his grace? What does that mean? It means that we simply grow in those character traits. We grow in deeper love, experience, appreciation, admiration, insight, wisdom, discernment, uh, more <clears throat> consistent in developing, if you want to use neurobiology, neuropathways, uh, which are in harmony with God's principles. Thus, we develop godly habit patterns or healthy patterns of living. As we live those out, those things change, and we develop fruits of the Spirit. We become uh, more, more loving, joyful, kind, patient, peaceful, faithful, gentle, self-controlled. We grow. Tim. Yes. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen with me a lot unless I learn from my mistakes. Learning from those mistakes, mistakes are life lessons to me. And That's exactly right. That is exactly a biblical biblical truth. It is. When did Peter come to his re, true conversion and repentance? After, After denying denial. Christ, denial. Yeah. It was that mistake where he wept bitterly and truly let go of all self motivations. Yeah. Now he didn't have every answer. Didn't understand all facts correct. But he really surrendered completely after that mistake. David. When did David come to true conversion? 
it wasn't after he defeated Goliath. It wasn't after he defeated the lion. It wasn't after all these wonderful, mighty works that he did. It was after his fall with Bathsheba. And he was confronted by Nathan. And then he wrote Psalms 51. Created me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit. Search me and find the wicked way in me. Take your Holy Spirit from me. Against you and you only have I sinned. So forth and so on. This is when he got to the deep well recesses of, the, of his soul and spirit that were really renewed and, and, and reborn at that point. So you're right. It's well said. Thank you. Monday's lesson, the second paragraph says, Jesus uses the term son of man to refer to himself 82 times in the Gospels. It was one of his favorite titles. He used it as an expression of endearment to identify with us. He is a savior who understands us has experienced our temptations, and has passed through our trials. He is the Son of Man who is returning to take us home. The Jesus who comes for us is the same Jesus who lived among us. He is qualified to redeem us because he became one of us. And yet, as one of us, he met the full fury of Satan's temptation and, yes, was victorious. What do you think of this term, Son of Man, used 82 times? I think it makes him more personable when we realize that he, as a man, was dealt with all the temptations and stuff that we did, and yet he fulfilled it. Okay, so we know that he wasn't a figment. He wasn't a, uh, a, a an apparition. He wasn't a, a pretend being, pretending to be a man. He was truly human and truly went through this. Uh, was it so that the Godhead could learn something that Godhead had no knowledge of? No. No, no. Was it so that we could learn something we didn't believe or have knowledge of? Yes. Hmm. Yes. It was so that we could know that God is love, and we could know that God sympathizes with us, and we could know that God will sacrifice himself for us, and that we could know that God does not leave any resource uh, uh, un. Uh, invested in our redemption, that he pours out everything that he has for our welfare. It is all for our education, knowledge, and conversion. This was not done to and somehow improve, inform, or develop God in some way that God needed developing. But also, when I was studying this, I thought, remember, the other worlds out there, they don't know the end from the beginning. And when they saw Satan and the angels cast out of heaven, I'm sure they wondered why. Why did God forgive them? But it was through the acts of Christ on earth, I feel like, as a man, they realized that he was willing to humble himself and become a man for us to understand it more. Uh, Well said. Well said. And so I'm going to follow up or expand on what you just said, that in fact, I think this term son of man isn't just for our ability to empathize and recognize that he empathized with us. I think this is a great controversy statement. This is a great controversy statement. I'm going to share a series of statements from Ellen White, who I believe is the most influential founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, I think her primary contribution to the body of Christian thought, what she brought that is the most significant contribution was the great controversy perspective, fleshing out and, and showing that in fact, the plan of salvation included more than just 
human beings. Uh, that the third of the angels fell, they won't be saved, but the loyal angels in heaven had questions that needed answering as well. And we find biblical evidence for this great controversy perspective all through scripture. In, in John 12, 32, when Jesus said, I, but I, when I am lifted up, will draw all to myself, if your your Bible will almost certainly have the word men in there, I will draw all men unto myself. But the word men in our English translations is inserted by the translators. Jesus did not speak that word, that was not in the Greek. He draws all unto himself. All the intelligences are drawn. This is confirmed in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, when it says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This idea that the cross was absolutely for our salvation but included more than our salvation. And you get glimpses of this controversy all through scripture. There was a serpent in Eden tempting our first parents. Uh, we, we have the, the first chapter of the book of Job when the heavenly council is set and Satan comes walking to and fro on the earth. We have Zechariah chapter three, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness where Satan appears as an angel of light. Jesus casting out the demoniacs and their declaring and revealing that in fact there are these in, uh, fallen angelic forces working against uh, God. Revelation chapter 12, which says there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. So this idea of a controversy that goes beyond humanity is clearly a biblical concept. And I think Ellen White did more than any uh, uh, Christian writer to help us get great, gain greater insight into the larger landscape of God's universal war to bring peace through the entire universe and eliminate sin permanently from the universe. And that was, and, and the key to all that was Jesus Christ and his mission here on earth and his sacrifice on the cross. So back to the question then, is Jesus' term of the uh, use of the term son of man then a great controversy statement? And I want to share some quotes from Ellen White, and I want to show you how this term is really, he's saying over and over again, this is his mission, uh, that yes, he identifies with the Son of Man, because man, he it, it has a purpose in the great controversy. This is out of Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3, page 36. Before the fall of Satan, the father consult, consulted his son in regard to the formation of man. They purposed to make this world and created beasts and living things upon it, and to make man in the image of God to reign as a ruling monarch over every living thing which God should create. When Satan learned the purpose of God, he was envious of Christ and jealous because the Father had not consulted him in regard to the creation of man. Satan was of the highest order of angels, but Christ was above all. He was the commander of all heaven. He imparted to the angelic family the high commands of his father. The envy and jealousy of Satan increased until his rebellion, all heaven was in harmony and perfect subjection to the government of God. Satan commenced to insinuate his dissatisfied feelings to other angels and a number agreed to aid him in his rebellion. Satan was dissatisfied with his position. Although very exalted, he aspires to be equal with God. And unless the Lord gratifies his ambition, deter, determines to rebel and, and refuse submission. He desires, yet dare not at once venture to make known his envious, hateful feelings. But he content, contents himself with gaining all he can to, all, all he can to sympathize with him as though deeply wronged. 
he relates to them his thoughts of warring against Jehovah. So do we see that first, God, before Satan's rebellion, had a plan that man would be created in his image and would govern this planet uh, as God governs the universe, ultimately. This is Story of Redemption, page 20. After the earth was created and the beasts upon it, the Father and the Son carried out their purpose, which was designed before the fall of Satan, to make man in their image, in their own image. They had wrought together in the creation of the earth and every living thing upon it. And now God said to his son, let us make man in our image. As Adam came forth from the hand of the creator, he was of noble height and beautiful symmetry. God in his foreknowledge and eternal wisdom had purposed for the species human before, had a purpose for us before Satan rebelled in heaven. And now we're going to gain, this is out of the book Education, page 15. When Adam came from the creator's hand, he bore in his physical, mental, and spiritual nature, a likeness to his maker. God created him in his own image. And it was his purpose that the longer man lived, the more fully he should reveal this image, the more fully reflect the glory of the creator. All his faculties were capable of development. Their capacity and vigor were continually to increase. Vast was the scope offered for their exercise. Glorious the field opened to their research. The mysteries of the visible universe, the wondrous works which, uh, of him, which is perfect in knowledge, invited man's study face-to-face, heart-to-heart communion with his maker was his high privilege. Had he remained loyal to God, all this would have been his forever. Throughout eternal ages, he would have continued to gain new treasures of knowledge, to discover fresh springs of happiness, and to obtain clearer and yet clearer conceptions of the wisdom, the power, and the love of God. More and more fully would he have fulfilled the object of his creation. More and more fully would he have reflected the creator's glory. Are we seeing a purpose in the creation of mankind, humankind, to be made in God's image, to carry out God's purposes, to govern this planet with the principles God governs the universe, to grow in the glory of God, in the character of God, the methods of God, the principles of God? Do you think Satan wanted this purpose carried out in humanity? And so we read out of Christ's triumphant, page 10. As soon as the Lord, through Jesus Christ, created our world and placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan announced his purpose to conform his own, own nature to uh, his own nature, the Father. And I just I missed a, I missed a word. Satan announced his purpose to conform to his own nature, the Father and Mother of all humanity, and to unite them with his own ranks of rebellion. He was determined to efface the image of God from the human posterity and to trace his own image upon the soul in the place of the divine image. Are you getting a sense now of the controversy, of the war, of the battle for hearts and minds, of what Satan is attempting to do in you and in me, what the plan of salvation is about? God has a purpose for humanity, to be the repository of his living law of love. Understand, God's law cannot be understood on stone. For love requires life, and human beings were created in the image of God to live out God's law of love in governance of themselves and how they treat other people. Satan is the father of lies, fear, and selfishness. His goal is to erase fidelity and love and truth and integrity and honesty and loyalty from the living temple where God placed his image. And instead, have living human beings carry out the law of survival of the fittest, of me first, of power over, of control, of coercion, of abuse, and murder, and death. Jesus came as the second Adam, 
to overthrow the infection of fear and selfishness and sin that Satan introduced into the hearts and minds of human beings and to restore God's image. So we read out of General Conference Daily Bulletin, March 2nd, 1897. In assuming human nature that he might reach to the very depths of human woe and misery and lift man up, Christ has shown what estimate he places upon the human race. In this work, everything was at stake. Satan claimed to be the lawful owner of the fallen race. And with what persistent effort did he seek to overthrow Christ through his subtlety? It was only by the most desperate conflict with the power of Satan that Christ could accomplish his purpose of restoring the almost obliterated image of God in man and place his own signature upon his forehead. It was a desperate battle, for Satan was so, had so long worked in league with human intelligences as to almost completely intercept every ray of light shining from the throne of God upon the human mind. The cross of Calvary alone could destroy the work of the devil. In that wondrous sacrifice, all eyes were called to behold the Lamb of God taken away, uh, which takes away the sin of the world. The love of Christ kindles in, kindled in the heart, or kindles in the heart of all, who continue to behold him. Is it possible that Jesus uses the term son of man because he he is not just redeeming the individual human beings from sin, but he is redeeming the mission and the purpose for which God created Adam in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And by doing this, Christ not only reveals the truth of God's character of love, his design laws of life, but he also reveals that Adam's sin in Eden was not the result of a manufacturer's defect. By Christ's victory in the weakened humanity, Jesus proves that Adam's sin was not because of some flaw in Adam's design or creation or lack of some resource that Adam needed to succeed. Christ demonstrated this victory and perfectly restored God's image in mankind. The last, uh, the last paragraph in the lesson states, Notice with some element. Notice some elements in these par- passages. Jesus, the Son of Man, is coming in glory with his angels. He will divide the sheep from the goats, basically a judgment. The destiny of the nations and all humanity will be decided for eternity. So, what is the lesson saying? Jesus is coming. There's going to be a judgment, and the destinies are decided. What law lens do you do you read these types of things through? If we use the human law lens, when you hear about this judgment, what comes to mind? A ruling judge or jury evaluating the evidences, and the ruling judge or jury determines who's found guilty and who's acquitted. But that's not how judgment works in God's kingdom. That only that's that's human law. If you actually look at the description of the metaphor that Jesus uses, sheep and goats. If any person of authority, including God himself, separates sheep from goats, what is the basis of that judgment? That the very natural characteristics. Yeah. Yes, it's that sheep are sheep and goats are goats. It's the inherent nature of the two living beings. The judgment of God does not make a sheep a sheep or a goat a goat. Yeah. They either are a sheep or a goat. Yeah. 
So in the final judgment, God's judgment merely confirms who the sheep and the goats are. God's judgment does not determine one's eternal destiny. God's judgment sustains, affirms, confirms the choices that every single person has made in forming their own character and solidifying themselves in love and trust to God or hardening themselves against him. Thus we read in Revelation 22, verse 11 and 12, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. This is the judgment. God is simply stating those who have chosen to trust me and allow me to heal them, they are now settled and sealed and I recognize them as such. Those who have rejected me have destroyed within them the faculties that respond to love and truth and there's nothing more I can do for them. Then what about Tuesday's lesson? The heavenly judgment. The heavenly judgment. Well, when you think of the heavenly judgment, I again encourage you to check out our magazine because we go through the four judgments, and there's four different ones. And one of them is the judgment and revelation, our, our text for this quarter, Revelation 14. Fear God and glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Which of the four judgments is referenced in Revelation 14? The hour of his judgment has come. Is this a tribunal where books are opened in heaven and and deeds are examined and looking for blood payments to make uh, assuage the wrath and pay the judicial penalty? Is that what's happening? The hour of his judgment? Opening up the record books? No. The lesson takes that position. Uh, And the lesson takes the position that the judgment is a judicial process in which records are open and the heavenly tribunal sits. They use Daniel 7, 9 to 10, and 13 and 14 as the basis for this, and they reference that in the lesson. So let's read those verses and see what you think. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow. His hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was a flaming, flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seat, seated and the books were opened. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the the lesson emphasizes that a court was set and books were opened. If one views the Bible through a human-imposed law, then one hears court and books as a legal court and legal books and books of, of sins of the book of records and so forth. And this, so they project in. But if we recognize God's law as design law and God's govern, government does not operate like human government, then we actually read the text and see what the text itself tells us. What's actually happening in the text? What's really being described? And we realize that, in fact, this is not a judicial court. This is a royal court for the coronation of Christ and the reception of his kingdom. Jesus comes and receives his kingdom from his father. And the royal court is set. And he is being crowned. And he is receiving power and authority and dominion over his kingdom. 
and he is proven worthy to receive this kingdom because he has shown himself to be safe with all the power through his life and self-sacrificial death here on earth. And this is the same event. I'm going to show this to you. It's going to blow your mind. What you read in Daniel 7 is the same event described in Revelation chapter 5. Same event. And Revelation 5 gives us some more details. Let's look at Revelation 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Remember Daniel 7? Somebody's on the throne. There's a throne. Somebody's sitting on it. And he's got a book. Now we know that book has seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion, the tribe of, of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to, to open the scroll with its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before him. And each one had a harp, and they were holding a golden bowls full of incense, and they are pray, uh, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all them sang, sing, were singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you see the same event in in Revelation 5 as Daniel 7? God is on his throne. The heavenly intelligence are gathered around and more numerous than you can possibly count. Jesus comes to his father and is found worthy to receive his kingdom. Jesus takes a book and the book is opened. Does this sound like a judicial scene to you? No. Mm -mm. This is not a judicial scene. What's the book? So what is this book? Wonderful question. (laughs) What is this book with the seven seals? Great question. And so now I'm going to read to you the same passages we just read out of the NIV. I'm going to read it to you from the remedy and see if this clears up. This is my paraphrase, and this is the way I see it. But see what you think about this. Then I looked and I... Then I looked and I saw that he who sits on the throne had written out the history of the world before the world began and sealed it up. It was symbolized by a book in his right hand with writing within and sealed with seven seals. And I watched as a mighty angel asked in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the book of God's foreknowledge and intervene in human history? But there was no created being in heaven or or living on earth among the dead or who who could open the scroll or even look at its contents. 
my heart broke with sadness because there was no one found who could open the book or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, don't be sad. See, Jesus, the lion from Judah, the descendant of David, has overcome and is now able to open the book of God's foreknowledge sealed by seven seals. Then I saw a lamb appearing as if it had been slain, symbolizing Jesus who sacrificed himself to eradicate sin, standing at the command center of the universe, surrounded by his staff and agents, symbolized by the four living creatures and elders. He had... All heavenly power, he had all heavenly power and all wisdom at his disposal, symbolized by the seven horns and the seven eyes, which represent the God's spirit. And he was directing every heavenly agency to rescue, heal, and restore his children living on the earth. He came and took the book from God's right hand. When he took the book, he his staff, symbolized by the four living creatures and 24 elders, were so relieved that they fell down in joy and awe before him. They were processing requests from God's children on earth, symbolized by the golden bowls of incense they each held. They also had renewed hearts that were like musical instruments making beautiful melody, making a beautiful melody. And they sang a new song stemming from their admiration for Jesus. You are able to take the book and reveal the sealed contents because you were killed. And by your death, you revealed the truth and achieved the remedy to free humans from sin and restore people from every race, language, tribe, and nation to God. You have revealed their, you have healed their minds, making them a kingdom of priests ministering the remedy of our God, and they will administer God's methods on earth. Then I heard many voices, so I looked and I saw millions of angels, so many it was beyond my ability to count. They surrounded the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In rich, booming voices they sang, Worthy is Jesus the Lamb to possess all power, resources, and ability, and to receive all honor, glory, and praise, because he was slain, proving that he will never abuse such mighty power. Then I heard the living beings in the universe singing in unison to him who sits on the throne and to Jesus the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever without end. And the four living creatures said, absolutely right. And the elders fell down in adoration and awe. Wow. That's awesome. Amen. That's good. Do you recognize that the events of Daniel 7 are not judicial? They are a description of Jesus receiving his kingdom, his power, and authority to take command of all heavenly resources for the purpose of healing and saving us. And the book with the seven seals is the book of God's foreknowledge that he recorded before he began creating. Then after recording his foreknowledge of events in the book sealed with seven seals, God God created at some point and some point established the recording angels to record history as it unfolded. And when Jesus unseals the seven seals, uh, the book of God's foreknowledge is compared with history as it actually happened and was recorded by the angels. And all intelligent beings see that God does in fact have perfect foreknowledge but never uses that foreknowledge to restrict our liberty, take away our freedom of choice, or manipulate for selfish purposes. In other words, God's character and government are vindicated. This book is being opened not for the judgment of sinners, but for the judgment of God. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. It is time for the universe and all intelligent beings to recognize worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain and give all honor and glory to him who sits on the throne. Mm. That's the purpose of this. Mm. Now, some might argue 
that I am taking only a portion of Daniel 7 out of context and not including later verses in that same chapter. They claim establish this as a judicial court, specifically Daniel 7, 21 and 22, which reads, this is from the NIV, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Those who view the Bible through the human-imposed law lens will read this verse and say, see, God is pronouncing judgment. That makes it a tribunal, a legal court. However, this translation, pronounced judgment in favor of the saints, is an interpretation based on a preconceived idea of the translators, namely that God's law functions judicially. Now, let's be clear. I believe it's a legitimate translation. The, the, the Hebrew can be translated this way. So I am not alleging anything nefarious against the translators at all. But it is not the only legitimate translation. Notice how the King James Version translates the same passage, which I believe most would say is a legitimate translation. I beheld... And the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came they possessed the kingdom. The Hebrew actually means to impart or to give or to endow. And so what kind of war are we in? We're in a war of our hearts and minds. We're in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. We don't wage war like the world does. We have divine weapons that demolish strongholds, and, and we demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. This is the war we're in. And the little horn is waging war against the saints by corrupting their minds with false ideas. And they're winning until judgment was given to the saints, meaning until the saints were given the ability to make the right judgment, to have discernment to differentiate the truth from the lies, to have their mindset free from this imperial Roman dictator view of God that the little horn has been promulgating. And thus the prophecy of Daniel 7 is not a judicial prophecy or description. It is the description of reality that the truth that Jesus revealed being restored to the people when the Bible is finally being translated into their languages is enough to finally give them the truth or the, the divine weapons necessary to break free of the captivity their minds have been held in by these lies and they can make a right judgment of God. And so the three angels' message is the end time message, fear God, be in awe of God and glorify him for the hour is come in human history for people to make a right judgment about God. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Worship the creator and stop worshiping an imperial dictator who makes up rules and uses power to punish people who break his rules. Stop it. He's not that kind of God. That's the message. Questions. Now, I presented a ton. I'm going to pause and take questions before we go, because I got some more to present in the lesson, but that was a lot. Did you, did you ever see the connection between Daniel 7 and in Revelation 5. No, no, I didn't. Do you see it now? Do you see how they're strikingly similar? Yes, very much so. Yes. It's sad that our church doesn't make this connection. And they don't make the connection because they're caught in a penal legal distortion 
uh, teaching that God's law works like human law. They actually teach this penal legal investigation, records being evaluated, rulings being made, uh, uh, putting by names of the lost, how many minutes of torture has to be inflicted before they've suffered enough before they can be killed. I mean, it is quite a grotesque, perverse, and evil view of God. And this is why uh, the the Lord hasn't come because the three angels' message, which is the internal gospel, which is go to is to go to the entire world to lighten the world, and when that happens, the end will come. Has not gone to the world. the The message of the three angels has been co opted by an by the imperial dictator distortion of God, and we've taken this imperial dictator view of God just with a different set of laws that He'll punish you for than the Roman view. Tim. But it's not different in nature than the Roman view. Tim. And that's why God is waiting for his people to finally stand up and take the true message that God is not like a Roman dictator. Tim. Do yes. You, do you feel like it seems like the message is, is going slow? I mean, you have people who accept this message and we share it to whoever will listen. And then, do you feel like that's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's really going to catapult the the message? So I think I think what's happening is, as I read Revelation, that God is waiting for His people, symbolically, not literally, represented by the hundred and forty-four thousand. And the 144,000, it says in Revelation chapter seven, that God holds the four winds, hold, 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 until. My servants are sealed in their forehead. Servants in scripture, if you do a, a word check and say, look, every place where God identifies people as servants, they're his prophets. His, my, prof, my servants, the prophets. My servants, the prophets. All through scripture. And prophets are not primarily prognosticators. Most of the Bible prophets were not people who were giving prophecies they were spokespersons. They were people sent from God with a message for the people. That's what they were. And so God is saying he, at the end of time, he is waiting for his end time people to be sealed in their foreheads, settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that they cannot be shaken when troubles come. When those people are sealed from 144,000, 12,000 from all the 12 tribes, symbolically representing people all over the globe, all over the world, he will have people being sealed or settled into this truth about him. Then the four winds begin to loose. And as the four winds begin to loose, then the people who have been slumbering and, and, and distracted with the busyness and entertainments of life be waking up and go, what's going on in the world? What's happening? And God's witnesses are on scene all over the world to tell the true message. And from their witness, later in chapter 7, a great multitude from every nation, tribe, kindred, and people respond and are saved. And so I see God is waiting to pour out his Holy Spirit upon the hearts and minds of the receptive. He's waiting for his sealed, his people, his witnesses, his end-time special ambassadors that, in my view, the 144,000 does not represent the totality of all the end time saved. It represents those people who have the end time message to share. And the end time saved are the great multitude from every nation, tribe, kingdom, and people who respond to the witnesses' uh, end time message. That's how I read that. And so I think he's waiting for you and me and others to be so sealed that nothing can shake us from it. 
And then he will pour out his spirit upon us to give this message. And events will happen in the world that will correspond as the message is going forward. Understand both sides are escalating their message. God's spirit is being poured out as Satan's roaring lion is becoming more aggressive because he knows his time is short. And evil will be rising as the message is being poured out. And both sides are escalating and crescendoing their people to prepare them for the coming of both of their saviors, if you will. Okay, and I think these are simultaneous events happening. Does that make sense? Yeah, but if our church, in their evangelistic outreach, preached this, which you just read, it would make God more appealing to the world than what he's instead of instead of teaching about Daniel and Revelation and smoking and drinking and all that kind of stuff, presented a God that we'd love to follow, then we would have. And if the Sanhedrin 2,000 years ago would have presented God as Jesus revealed him to be in Jesus' ministry 2,000 years ago, then, then the God that the Sanhedrin worshipped and was teaching would have been more appealing. Judaism would have been more appealing to the world than it was. The, 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 the Jewish nation 2,000 years ago was God's church on earth called to prepare for the first advent, but Satan had so infected them with a false legal view of things that they turned the world against and they turned the people against God. Uh, Jesus was the true representation of what Judaism was supposed to reveal to the world, and it drew. It drew the Roman. It drew the Samaritans. It drew, it drew all the peoples in mass to him. And you're exactly right. This is the message that will lighten the world and draw the final message of mercy, the truth of God's character of love that we read. Mm-hmm. And we are to give God glory at this time in history by revealing, by, by having his image restored in us, being so settled into the truth, being sealed of God, that we represent him rightly and govern ourselves as he governed himself when he was here. It's all connected. Do you see the connections? How it all links. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wednesday's lesson. Third and fourth paragraph reads, the angel comes from the presence of God in the glory of the temple of and says, it's time. The harvest is fully ripe. Go and get your children and bring them home. Jesus uses illustrations from agriculture repeatedly uh, in the New Testament one, on more than one occasion. He uses the symbolism of ripening harvest to illustrate the growth of the seed of the gospel in the lives of the people. So, This idea that go and harvest, the harvest is right, go. Go with your sickle, the harvest is right. What what idea comes to mind when you hear that? What laws are involved in ripening a harvest? What kind of laws govern that? Natural. If Congress, if the U.S. Congress passes a law that crops in America are legally allowed to grow without water, what happens? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. If Congress passes a law that says plants that receive sunshine and rain are not legally allowed to grow in this country. If Congress passes a law that says anyone who plants thorn bushes are legally allowed to harvest figs. I mean, you're laughing. But understand this, this, what I'm saying to you, is exactly what penal legal substitution has done to Christianity. And people buy it. The whole penal legal stuff is about legal adjustments and things and has no bearing on objective reality. reality. What determines whether one is a wheat or a tear, a wheat or a weed? (laughs) What determines it? What determines in which group you're harvested? 
Your choice is your Our choice, right? yeah. Yeah. Heart and mind. Yeah. Heart and mind. Heart and mind. Yeah. <laughs> yes, what the choices we make. Whether we've accepted Christ, allowed the seeds of truth to be planted in our hearts, watered by the Spirit, such that we grow up into Christ, into the full stature of Jesus Christ. That's one, that we become a wheat. Or whether we reject the siege of truth, reject the Holy Spirit, and thus harden ourselves into rebellion and become a weed. That's exactly right. In the fifth paragraph in the quarterly, quoting from Christ Object Lessons, it states, Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Unquote. <laughs> Have you ever heard that before? Yes. Yes. What does it mean? Does it mean we don't experience sanctification until the end of our lives? Does it mean that the antediluvians who lived 900 years had an advantage in becoming sanctified over those of us who can only live at best 100 years? They had a nine times more advantage of sanctification than us because they could live nine times longer and it's a work of a lifetime. Is this, how, is this how you've often heard it? Always. I can't be sanctified today. It's going to take my whole life. Is that how you've heard it? That's how I used to hear it when I was a kid. How about if I said this to you? Eating is the work of a lifetime. <laughs> That's true. Yes. That's true. Isn't it true? Yes. Sanctification does that mean eating is not something you do to the end of your life? No. Sanctification is growing in godliness. If we have chosen Jesus as our Savior, we've been converted, then every day of our life we're growing just like every day we're eating. And every day we're growing in godliness. Every day we're advancing in insight and wisdom and truth of God's kingdom. Every day we're living out his methods and growing in maturity, gaining greater insight. Sanctification is not a point in time. It is a way of living. We live sanctified lives. Amen. Even though we make mistakes. Even though we make mistakes. Mistakes does not mean you're not living an unsanctified life. The unsanctified life, uh, when you make mistakes, you actually are proud of them. You go on Facebook and Twitter and put up naked pictures of yourself and brag about how you beat up in the mall yesterday and how you got away with squatting in somebody's property that's not yours and how, how you're not letting them have their own property, but you're going to take and pay and live there with no rent. And you're going to uh, 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 take video of yourself having a riot and destroying someone's property and shoplift and brag about how, how you got away with it all. That's the unsanctified life. The sanctified life, if you make a mistake, you grieve, you fall on your knees, you repent, and you ask for grace to give you victory over the weakness that led you to make the mistake. Amen. 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 Sister White says it's not the occasional sin that we commit, it's the trend of our life. That's right. Second uh, paragraph in Thursday's lesson, boy, I am so proud of myself cruising through this lesson. Aren't you guys proud of it? Yeah. <laughs> Thursday's lesson, second paragraph, says another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. That's, that's a quote from Revelation 14, 18. Quote, another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, unquote. Here the, is the angel who commands the fires of God's final judgment. The harvest is ripe. 
sin has reached its limit. Rebellion has crossed the line of God's mercy. And as evil and bad as things have been, it's going to get even worse before it's all over. A loving God has done everything he can do for us, which includes offering himself on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. I found that, first off, does that bring you comfort and peace to hear that paragraph? Or does it, is it frightening? Is it scary? Yeah. And I want you to understand, this is an abuse of Scripture. Amen. It is a twisting of the Word of God. Yes. And it is a misrepresentation Absolutely. to be exactly the opposite yeah. what of what Scripture teaches. Mm-hmm. And they've done it by clipping a, a portion of a passage to try to make it say something it doesn't it's 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 one of the it's one of the grossest things you can do with the scripture try to make it teach something it doesn't teach let me let me unpack it for you and show you this we're going to read revelation 14:18 they read this another angel came out from the altar who had the power over fire end quote and then they followed with their own sentence that said here is the angel who commands the fire of god's final judgment what are they implying that this fire revelation is the fire of inflicted punishment, is basically what they're saying. Yeah. Let's read it in a larger context. Still another angel, who, and, and ask what, what's actually happening? What, what, what does the angel do with the fire? Does the fire do anything? Here, another, here, still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him had a sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. Does the angel use the fire here to inflict punishment? No. No. Do we find fire being used at all? Or we're just told this is the angel who comes from the fire. And if we allow the text to influence our conclusions about the fire, if we allow the text itself to influence our conclusion about the fire, what kind of fire would you say this is? Where's this fire coming from? From God. God. It's a, yeah. It says that this in charge of the fire came from the altar. We're using visual imagery from the sanctuary services. Did the sanctuary services have fi- altars? And did the altars have fire in them? Some did. And were some? There was a brazen and a golden altar, and they both had fire that was never to be to go out. Candles. The candle was not the altar, but this he came from the altar, and this is in charge of the fire. So one could conclude, if you allow the text to interpret itself, this is the fire that burns in the altar in the sanctuary of God. That's all symbolism. Right. So if we allow the Bible to further interpret itself, let's check out Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 7. Keep this idea of altar in mind and what this fire does. The lesson wants us to think the fire is going to be final judgment to, to punish. Listen to this. I saw the Lord. He was sitting on his throne, high and exalted, and his robe filled the whole temple. So notice our setting. Where, where do we find the altar? in the temple, and here we are in Isaiah, we're in the temple. So we're in the same location where we would find the altar. We're in the temple. 
Round him, flaming creatures were standing. Each had six wings. What kind of fire do you think is flaming from them? Do you think that's combustion? Do you think that, that they're, they're on some type of, of rack being tormented there in heaven? No. Each creature covered its face with two wings and its body with, uh, and used the other two for flying. They were calling out to each other, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty is holy. His glory fills the world. The sound of their voices made the foundation of the temple shake, and the temple itself was filled with smoke. I said, there is no hope for me. I am doomed because every word that passes my lips is sinful. I live among people whose every word is sinful. And yet, in my own eyes, I have seen the King, the the Lord Almighty. Then one of the creatures flew down to me carrying a burning coal. That, came, that he had taken from the altar. What's our Revelation 18? He's in charge of what? Fire from where? From the altar. This is the same angel. He touched my lips with the burning coal and said, this has touched your lips and now your guilt is gone. Your sins are forgiven. Wow. What does the angel in charge of the fire at the altar do? He uses the fire of God's love and glory and truth to cleanse us from sin. This is the angel at the fire. So why does the angel who is being used to minister the fires of love and truth to cleanse our hearts and mind from sin, why is he going to the angel with the sickle saying it's time to harvest? Because the angel who heals the hearts and minds can only heal the hearts and minds. The one who brings the truth and love of God can only do that to those who are willing to receive it. And so he says, there are no more hearts and minds that I can minister to. They've all hardened against me. The grapes of wrath are full. All the rest are hardened against us. It's time for you to harvest. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for the truth you revealed to us in scripture. We thank you so much that you run your universe on design law. You're not an imperial Roman dictator. That all of your scripture harmonizes. That Jesus has received his kingdom. That he stands at the command center of the universe. That he's using every agency, every power, every resource for the healing and restoring and recovery of your children here on earth. We open our hearts and minds. Ask for the outpouring of the spirit. Ask for the fire from the altar of your temple to cleanse our hearts and minds and lips and hands and feet. That we can be bright, shining agents for you to take this message to the world to transform hearts and minds. Seal us to your kingdom right upon our foreheads. Let us glorify you on this earth that you may be judged rightly at this time in history and that you may come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.